Hey, I'm Benedict, and we are back for a new episode of Maastricht Law Talk today about something not necessarily European Union related, um, namely the American legal system. More after the intro. Every year in Ontario, thousands of people are seriously injured in car or slip and fall accidents. Recovery can be overwhelming and for many, a financial nightmare. Sir, drop your weapon, put your hands on your head and get down on the ground. You are going to be placed under arrest. We can help them get the financial compensation they deserve. That preventing a breach of the peace is a legitimate state interest. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. With me today is Larry Carter Becker, a professor of international affairs and law at Penn State. Larry, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. You um, did your master's at Harvard and then a JD at Columbia, is that right? Right. And then um, next to all of those, uh, well, next to your professorship at the moment, you're also the executive director of the Coalition for Peace and Ethics, um, which I would ask you to just briefly introduce. Oh, it's it's just a a little non-governmental organization that uh, I... I, I use a work uh, along with uh, a number of colleagues uh, to look at uh, policy issues either in the United States or abroad. Okay. And uh, next to that, you're also a member of the American Law Institute and the European Corporate Governance Institute. Right. Uh, and this, I think, makes you a perfect candidate for this podcast here because uh, you seem to have an... Uh, well, an interest in, in the European law, is that right? Yes, yeah, although we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, to what amount you, uh, does your amount of work to at the moment in that area? Um, well, I, I, I've spent a number of years doing a lot of comparative work. Uh, for a while, I was doing courses on European Union law uh, with a focus on uh, corporate and economic law, of course, but also the constitutional law of the European Union. Um, I've, 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 come from a tradition that that believes that it's easier to understand your own system if you begin to have an intimate understanding of others as well. And, and I found it very useful to mm. study other systems in their own right, but also to study them um, in relation to my own. Today, uh, we would love to talk mostly about the United States legal system, which is, of course, a very uh, broad topic. <laughs> um, and I, I would like to open the discussion with a question. Are there 50 laws or are there one? Well, the answer is that there's more than 50 laws, <laughs> not just 50. Yeah, the, there's a difference between thinking about the American legal system as a, uh, as a legal order. Uh, which one can at a very high level of generality view as a singularity. Mm -hmm. And then viewing the legal structures, the jurisdictional divisions of that legal order within the polity itself. And as, as probably most people know, the American government, unlike the, the French, but closer to the German, is a federal union, uh, which in and of itself then creates a series of legal systems which are bound together in a hierarchy that is itself determined, the, the effects of which are itself determined or guided uh, by our constitution, by our federal constitution. Uh, but the, 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 
systems, the laws, include not just the 50 states, of course, the District of Columbia, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, and other dependencies, and um, and federal law as well. So yeah, 50 states, dependencies, (laughs) um, odds and ends, and then of course, federal law. I think in the first episode of this podcast, I talked with Bram Ackermanns, a professor of European private law and uh, property law, and we had the uh, introduction to law in general. So not only uh, European law or some Dutch law, but just in general, Uh, a lot of philosophy. And we also talked about the differences between common law and civil law. So this is what European scholars love to talk about, um, because there's pretty much only one uh, common law uh, jurisdiction in the European Union, being the uh, United Kingdom. And not for long. Sorry? (laughs) And not for long. Not for long, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. That's a topic you always have to talk about. yeah, but, but the, you, you just mentioned the 50 states, and I think what also came up in the first one, uh, the first episode, was that not all of those 50 states have the common law system that, um, well, the United States is so uh, famous for in uh, European students. Well, that yeah, yes, that's true. Uh, the most uh, famous examples, of course, is Louisiana that prides itself on, on being a, a sort of French derivative, <laughs> although one can argue about that. I, I don't argue with people from Louisiana about this. I take them at their word. Uh, there are civil law um, wisps, if you like. There's there's civil law intimations, uh, especially in some of the states that was formed out of the territories transferred to the United States after the, uh, the Mexican War of 1848, California, of course, being one of the most important that have a code approach to law in ways that would be very different from uh, the old uh, English colonial uh, parts of the United States, New England, uh, and the Mid-Atlantic. But one has to be very careful when one talks about common law, when one normally looks at common law as a as a, a kind of way of discussing the general issue of sources of law. That yes, is, true. Um, mm-hmm. where, where you know, is law sourced in a legislature and there's an ideology to that, or is law sourced outside of a legislature? And if it is sourced outside of the legislature and it's customary in some sense, then what is the magisterium? I'm mixing my systems here, but I'm doing it deliberately, yeah. right? What is that group or the class that is then responsible either for making it or actually more precisely for articulating it and applying it in the context of disputes. And it's in that sense that one can look at common law. But common law in the United States is much more than that. And and really, it pays to think, when you think about common law, you have to think of it in three guises. The first is historical. Common law, of course, refers to that system of dispute resolution grounded in a writ system that originated in the ways in which the English monarchy essentially created a a coherent approach to the development of a quote-unquote national law or law of the mm-hmm. realm uh, through its own justices first, its, its justices, then the, the chancery, and its, its own operations. That's interesting to historians, but much less interesting to, to everyone else, although it, it, <laughs> it, it makes a difference in, in terms of the, the residual uh, consequences of these historical origins. Much more important, though, are the two additional meanings of common law. One of them is, of course, the one that everyone talks about, especially outside of uh, common law jurisdictions, 
And that is what I'd already mentioned, the, the source of law mm-hmm. question, you know, where is law coming from or from out of, out of what group, what political branch of, of the governmental apparatus does law emerge? But there's an equally and, and probably even more important element of common law, and that is the com- what I call the common law method. That is the approach that common law states, and particularly the United States, have adopted in respect to not just the articulation of what had been customary law, but now much more important, their approach to the interpretation of statutory law and of regulation. Um, which has moved over into a realm that one would have thought would have been at the very core of civil law and civil law ideologies have merged that, that is the primacy of the legislature, the primacy of the legislature with power devo- devolved to the administrative yeah. uh, reg- regulations, have created within that structure an enormously powerful glossing function of courts that then use statutes as a basis or the foundation from which an interpretive law of statutes or an interpretive law of administrative regulation arises, the aggregate of judicial glosses of which sometimes tend to become more important Mm-hmm. than the statute or the regulation itself. And so one begins to see common law in two very different guises. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess most people still see the judge. You know, when you think of common law, a lot of people think of actually the judge-made law. So so you do have the statutes, of course, but yeah. you also have the judge-made laws. And uh, you mentioned the primacy of statutes, etc. Um But at what level are we there in the United States at the moment? Is 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 the law making um, well, uh, basically being enforced only uh, by the legislator, or do the courts still play such a fundamental role um, in leading the law in a certain direction than uh, they might used to do? The relationship, I think, is is a little more complicated than that. The the relationship is much more symbiotic. Um, the the classical notions, the classical distinctions about common law and civil law, I think, are no longer relevant or yeah. particularly interesting. Even in Europe or in the United States, <laughs> both of the traditional models are now useful only as a starting point, but they're increasingly irrelevant and cute. I mean, and because quaint. they intertwine. No, because no. They, they they don't make any sense anymore. <laughs> you know, it's it's like it's when it's, it's like talking about your grandmother's fashion sense uh in, in the the forties or fifties. I mean it's very nice and it was very pretty and you can kind of see where today's fashions derive from, but it's 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 increasingly historical okay. in the way we started. Remember when we talked about the three versions. Yeah. In a sense, um Thinking about common law in that way is indulging in a kind of historicism that is ultimately unhelpful uh, and will tend to produce errors in the way in which you see things. When you look at common law today, the division that was at the root of classical notions about the way law is made and administered in the United States no longer really works. Mm -hmm. And again, it doesn't work because we're seeing a merger 
of the functionality of interpretation within the common law method now applied to statutes that occurs exactly at the same time that the judicial function in articulating law in the absence of statute has been substantially eroded uh, at the uh, at the state level. And so when you think about common law nowadays, I think from a, a perspective going forward as opposed to looking back, it's far more relevant to worry about or to think through the evolution of common law techniques within the interpretive functions of the court and its relationship to statutes and legislatures than it is to worry about the way in which common law expresses itself in tort or contract. Uh-huh. Because even contract now is, to some extent, statutorily overwritten. Tort is, to some extent, there's been an, in, an intrusion of statute. What is the relationship, then, between the, the judges interpreting the law and the legislator? You're going to hate me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's especially you, very interesting it's, also it's, with a European uh, perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's malleable and contextual. Um, it will depend on the nature of the statute. It will depend on the site within the government apparatus you're looking at, and it will depend on the character of the legislation or regulation that Mm -hmm. is the subject of interpretation. So judicial approaches to the interpretation of statutes and regulations have its own, ideology is too strong a word, but it's its own set of customary approaches at the federal level, which are to some extent mirrored in, but can be substantially different from what one sees in the relationship between state judges and the state statutory and administrative context as well. Uh, of course, it, it does depend on a case-to-case basis, but uh, I do remember an event last week um, where a scholar from uh, England um, talked about the codification um possibilities uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, England and Scotland. And and he said that most of the judges, I mean, the, star, uh, the, the uh, study is quite uh, some time old, I think 20 years, but at least back then, most of the judges were very much against uh, statutes. They didn't want the legislator to, um, to take away their, uh, well, th- their job maybe. Right. No, not their job. The the they didn't want the legislature to change the character and scope yeah. of their function. Yes, that was a debate we had in the twenties and thirties, and I still remember reading. <laughs> I still remember reading. Um, so the United States is a bit faster with that. Then. Well, yes and no. Yeah, I mean the English actually beat us in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, with respect to this, but this is this is an issue of the twentieth century. I think um, those issues and questions have been long ago asked and answered. We are no longer in a primarily common law-oriented, that is a customary law-oriented legal system. We are, whether we like it or not, or whether we're willing to admit it or not as a matter of our own ideology and our, our sense of what we look like, the reality is when other people look at us in the mirror, what you're seeing primarily is a system of statutes and regulations, and there's no way around that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but let, let me pause for a second. <laughs> it's, it's dangerous 
I think, to use a civil law term to describe a common law development. You use the term codification. Oh, yes. Codification, <laughs> that's a very naughty word, right? A German scholar, right? a Dutch scholar, a French scholar, our jurist will understand the word codification and code very differently mm -hmm. than a common law jurist or scholar. What you call codification is, and there's, there's been a bit of writing about this, um, yeah. in, uh, among, uh, English language or common law academics. And there's a big fight about this, but I'll, I'll, I'll advocate my own position <laughs> on this, right? To a large extent, there's no such thing as civil law codification in the common law, and it may well be impossible. And again, it may well be impossible because of the nature of the relationship between the judiciary, its interpretive function, and the statutes or regulations itself. What Americans especially tend to do is compile statutes within a particular mm -hmm. area develop frameworks within which statutes will have the leading or the privileged position in determining legal rights and obligations. But then it still comes down to the judge. It, it still comes down not to the judge, but to the exercise by the judiciary of mm -hmm. their interpretive function and then the application of the aggregation of interpretations of any particular statute in any particular context <laughs> to apply to the resolution of a particular dispute. So it's a little different. Right. The Germans can look at the innate self reflexive wholeness mm -hmm. of their code. They start from general principles to uh, subsidiary principles down to the, um, the, the operative provisions of a statute. One can look at the code itself and derive from the principles that are inherent in the code a method for figuring out the application of the specific within the general. You have your own ideology, mm. your own approach built into the code, and that's what makes the code so useful, certainly from 1900, uh, although the French would tell you from 1804. We'll let the French and Germans duke that out. Um, American systems are not quite that way. Our codes, quote-unquote, our compilations are much more porous. They admit to holes, and they admit to the filling in of those holes or the, the, the interpretation, the application of the statutes as a whole derived through a common, an exogenous approach rather than an endogenous approach, which is much more common as you work through interpretations or the, sorry, the application, not the interpretation, <laughs> the application of civil law. When gap filling is such an important factor there, uh, I also do remember the um, the scholar from last week uh, from England talking about that very often in those acts, the custom, the customary law, the, the judge-made law is basically only, well, codified is the wrong word now, uh, put into an act. So it's, it's it's not that much only about gap filling. It's also about just maybe maybe bringing about legal certainty. No, 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 no. Again, again, here's the problem. That approach presupposes that 
whatever has been fixed or codified is in and of itself sufficient as code to supply the answer in a particular context. (laughs) But that's, again, where American, Anglo-American compilation will differ from from European codification, no matter how many times a legislature will fill in. Right. There's nothing innate or inherent in the compilation itself that is sufficient all the time or most of the time to continue to fill in all of the gaps. And in any case, Mm -hmm. in any case, all of that gap filling is ultimately, ultimately relies on and is engaged in a discourse with the sum, the aggregate of judicial interpretation, either against which it is written or in the context of which it's embedded. There's no escaping it. How to come back to the starting question when we have the at least 50 states, then other territories, etc. How much does it differ from uh, all of those uh, jurisdictions? In general, of yeah, course, yeah, we yeah, can't yeah. go through all of them now, right, right. but is there... A hundred years ago, there was there were a lot more differences in a lot more different ways. Um, but two factors over the course of the last century have contributed substantially to homogenization. The first is the federalization of a substantial amount of the kinds of laws that tend to affect people. And and those are mostly macroeconomically based laws, uh, regulation of economic life, mm-hmm. to some extent, have been homogenized as they have become of more interest to and the subject of regulatory or legislative interventions at the federal level. That in and of itself creates a homogenization. But much more interesting has been the development that certainly accelerated after the Second World War of uniform laws, the creation of uniform laws. And this is a very odd thing from a European perspective, because essentially what wound up happening is that collections of of, um, influential jurists and uh, lawyers, sometimes with um, with, uh, state actors, sometimes not, and the states themselves decided that it made sense for purposes of efficiency to look at their variations in law, laws of contract, mm-hmm. laws of, uh, of uh, partnership, laws of uh, whatever, and to see if they could not, through discussion and dialogue, create either model rules against which legislatures can model each of their, their statutes or that serve as the template that most states will use. Uh, a great okay. example of that is the, uh, the ABA's um, uh, model rules uh, of corporate governance. The right. American Bar Association. Yeah, the yeah. American mm-hmm. Bar Association, the revised uh, Model Business Corporation Act. Mm-hmm. So you'll create a model act. Um, and it'll have absolutely no legal effect but 30-something states have now adopted variations yeah. of this Model Business Corporation Act and, and in, its, in, in a variety of, of variations. And what winds up happening is where you had sometimes dramatic differences in state corporate law, and, and of course the states remain the font of corporate legislation in the United States, where you had 50 sometimes dramatically different Now, most corporate law in most states, most of the time, are substantially similar with 
sometimes significant variations depending, but but most of these variations are now more at the margins than at the core of, of these um, acts. And so both of those have now contributed to homogenization, <laughs> even though technically and theoretically, States are free to be as mm-hmm. in you know within the constraints of federal constitutional law as wildly creative as <laughs> as their polities have a taste for. Is that just a good example, or does it happen often that there uh, is a blueprint and then um, there might there might be some? no only only on contentious issues. Okay, uh, contentious. But even there, here's the third bit of um, of homogenization. We have. Federalization, mostly of macroeconomic issues. We have um, state self-discipline in creating these through these model rules or model acts or or, or commissions, interstate commissions that, that create um, model rules or the like or their equivalent. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happened uh, starting a, after the uh, the 1930s was the constitutionalization of quite a of an increasing amount i won't say quite a bit but an increasing amount of social and political life and those then in turn created constraints against which um state effort at how should we say political creativity uh might bump up against so so are you talking about the federal constitution that Yes. Brings up more rights, and then the states have to deal with those somehow. Right, right. Rights okay. in a lot of areas where it, it would have been unusual to have thought of either constitutional interpretation or federal interpretation in any case. And of course, a lot of this comes from the increasing political tastes of the American polity for more and more legislation. Right. And this is something that the Europeans, of course, beat us at <laughs> uh, by several generations. What had once been viewed as in the realm of the private sphere or the religious sphere, certainly from the time of the uh, of the um, the the Deutsches Kaiserreich yeah. epic, you know, starts moving in first in Europe and then in the United States late um, into the public sphere. And as it moves into the public sphere, of course, it becomes politicized. And as it becomes politicized, of course, the structural components, the normative structural components of the federal constitution, state constitutions as well, but federal constitutions mm-hmm. then wind up getting triggered. And so in a sense, all of these things are operating. You've got three wheels working in a machine um, that over the course of a century have produced um tendencies towards homogenization and in a sense disciplining even of some of the most contentious social issues many of which are ongoing gay marriage abortion yeah. um the rights of uh of, of poor people and the like um I, i must say it's 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 hard but also very exciting for me to uh try to change my uh, thinking in that regard right I, i studied two years in germany before uh, very organized everything i mean but i i say organized i of course don't say that the united states system is not organized um <laughs> uh but then to just adopt to a non-codified if i was use this word again a system um to come back to the relationship between the federal government and and the states when i look into the german constitution there's one article telling me okay those are the competences of the states these are the competences that are shared 
all the others are left to the federal government or whatever you, you want to call this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but how is it organized in the United States? Can it's, you organized in, it's organized in... There's a little difference, of course, because Germany still has the residue of the of the old Deutsches Kaiserreich yeah. in, in its setup. We did not go through that period. We had our own <laughs> problems, but not yeah. that one. Um, and But we are organized. Federal unions tend to be organized in the same way. You're going to have a laundry list of... Matters with respect to which the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction, you're going to have a fairly large group of matters that are designated for concurrent jurisdiction, and then you're going to have those matters that are viewed as residual. Unlike the German Constitution, I think, which is more explicit, mm -hmm. in the American Constitution in the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, the residual authority of the state was left unnamed. It was everything. Okay. And of course, in the 18th century, the everything was enormous. And it, of course, it made absolutely no sense, especially if you're writing with a quill, to sit and spend, you know, six months trying to figure out and write what out essentially yeah. the entirety of the universe <laughs> of the sovereign authority of, of political states. It, it would have been an, an enormously stupid thing to do. And, and it wouldn't have entered into anyone's head to do it. Mm -hmm. Fast forward. 170 years to the 1920s or 30s. And a couple of things happen. One, the increasing authority of the federal government to exclusively determine the scope of its own jurisdiction. This is competence, competence, right? Moving into the federal government as a whole, but specifically into the federal Supreme Court with respect to the interpretation of the structural components, limitations, and applications of the federal constitution as a blueprint of our government. And then the second little shoe that drops is the willingness of the federal Supreme Court to interpret what had been very precise mm -hmm. and very constrained allocations or devolutions of power to the federal government to interpret them ex with increasing broadness so that while the words of the Constitution for in substantial respect haven't changed since 1789. But it's when meaning, it comes down to the content, it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. meaning. And again, here again, we go back to ah, common law sensibilities <laughs> within what you know the the Calsonian universe of of the of the European states within the political functions of the court in uh, in determining the structural right the political components of the state. Even there, we have in the United States imported the common law methodologies, mm -hmm. the use of glosses by courts, the legitimate, the legitimacy of those glosses, and indeed their dignity almost, not quite, almost <laughs> co-equal to the statute or constitution itself to then change effectively the words haven't changed, but their meanings have. And so in a sense, the, the odd thing, and this is, of course, the thing about common law that makes it so radically capable of change while retaining an extraordinary stability, mm -hmm. is that at its core, and I'm going to make a very radical claim, <laughs> at its core, all words of all of our statutes, all words of all of our political context are both heavily imbued with tradition and custom and practice, but also completely hollowed out or mm -hmm. hollowable so that as context requires, one can mediate between current context and the strong power 
the aggregated lessons of history and, not to be an originalist for a second, the strong pull of the original intention of those who drafted things in a way that creates, in its own way, some extraordinary flexibility. Now, of course, originalists would just faint uh, and, and say, oh, you know, Backer, you are just completely insane. The um, people on the left would go, oh, Backer, you're completely insane um, in the opposite direction. But when one looks fairly dispassionately um, and one takes off one's ideological blinkers or one's, mm -hmm. political, um, um, one's political agendas and one looks at the course of the relationship between judiciary interpretation and the words of the Constitution, one in the political sphere, or even the way in which those things relate to each other in just statutory systems, one sees both an extraordinary fidelity to custom tradition practice to the, to the origins of the thing, at the same time permitting that to be mediated by or through realities of a particular dispute that is planted and then which then contributes to and ultimately becomes part and parcel of what eventually will become tradition you, you mentioned the supreme court and i think it's a very good uh, introduction to maybe the the uh, the court structure in the united states um ha having the supreme court and also looking back at judgments that uh, it's um, ruled um it seems at least from a perspective perspective that i have that the very, um, well, let's say, well-discussed and disputed topics are left to the court um, to decide uh, when it comes down to gay marriage, etc., um, instead of to the political players. So the court plays such a big role in, uh, in, in pushing those policies, maybe even a bigger one than the federal government could do. Well, it... it <laughs> I'm I'm going to be a lawyer here for a second. <laughs> it depends. Or maybe right, or maybe a theorist. It it well, it depends on how you look at this. Yeah. If you look at these issues as issues of political moment that ought to be decided by the polity in accordance with the ideology of the construction of your political system. Right. And if you believe that your political system is grounded on popular sovereignty, which is then um, expressed through um, voting of representatives that are then assembled in a legislature and an executive, then this looks a little odd. Yeah. Now, let me pull you back. To, again, and this is this is the thing, which is why I started off by saying the extraordinary power of the ideology of the common law is both not only understudied and underappreciated, but but not really seen for what it is in the context of of the the framing of all of these issues and the way in which things wind up happening in the United States. One can look at we we talked about gay marriage. When one looks at it, it is possible to see it as a political issue that requires either uh, the polities of, of individual states, depending mm -hmm. on your view of federalism, or uh, the the central governmental apparatus to to make a determination, right, a, uh, a substantive legislative or constitutional determination. From the perspective of the common law, right, to the judge, it is possible 
Now, of course, this is probably not true, but it <laughs> is theoretically possible for one to view the question not as a political question, but as a question of structure and power. That is, as a question, this is a question. The federal constitution creates the architecture for the system of the republic. Yeah. That system itself imposes limitations on power. Mm-hmm. Not just limitations, not through the division of, of authority, that is, a president can't legislate or a legislature can't execute, but structural walls around which it is something like the Article One of the German Basic Law, structural constraints, normative constraints beyond which the state has no authority. When they look at the issue of same-sex marriage, it is possible for them to say, well, look, this isn't a question of political choice. It's really a question about the understanding of the barriers that the founders themselves created for what is politically possible to discuss and Mm -hmm. what is politically impossible to discuss. And in that sense, it becomes not a quote-unquote political issue with respect to the substance of gay marriage, although it's that's a consequential issue, but it becomes an issue about the structures, the intent and application of the structures of government that were put in place at the end of the 18th century, which is weird, uh, but but it's possible. But I think that's the perfect time to, to talk about uh, the death of Justice Scalia and then an empty um, uh, seat in the Supreme Court for quite some time. Uh, with the Republicans blocking a new judge, and now there is finally one. Um, yes. And the importance there is the politically, well, of course not officially, but still the, the, the parties want to set someone in, the, in this ninth chair that can actually make the decision, and their politics is involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, because, and this is the, the discourse that no one ever has, why is that true? It's true in a legitimate and it's true in an illegitimate way. The illegitimate way of looking at the politics is if, in fact, the judge comes to the bench with a normative political agenda, which is then infused, his own personal normative agenda, which is then infused in decision-making. Mm-hmm. That was, of course, the charge of American legal realists, the charge of the critical legal people and the radical left, and to some mm-hmm. extent, the radical right, about the legitimacy or actually the illegitimacy of the judiciary as a whole when they are asked to make judgments about decisions that are themselves characterized, whether correctly or not, as political. Yeah, And it is clear that when you look at the common law system in its pristine theoretical construct, mm-hmm. That that is, in fact, illegitimate because the judge sits in a fiduciary relationship to the matters discussed or to be resolved before her in the sense that he or she really is meant to serve as a funnel through which the aggregate of decisions of the judiciary are both synthesized and then applied to a particular issue so that you're not applying your own politics, but you're applying the his, the sum of the present value sum mm-hmm. of the approaches, interpretive tropes and the like of the judiciary as a whole to the extent they have any bearing on, on the, on the issue. Yeah. Right. 
<laughs> that's illegitimate and and within the common law tradition it is now what is legitimate and what although the the <laughs> the american political process tends to be sloppy and and one doesn't make these kind of fine distinctions except perhaps in the ivory tower more than anywhere else <laughs> but someone's got to do it at of least course, at yeah. least a little bit right <laughs> what ought to be legitimate is a political decision by the Senate and the president, yeah. not with respect to personal normative political agendas, but with respect to the normative approach to the craft of judging itself. That is, for example, Scalia had a normative agenda, at least he said he did, and then mm -hmm. there's, you know, opinions vary whether <laughs> this actually was true or not, and we'll have a generation of PhD and SJD students talking who will right, right, we'll talk yeah, about yeah. this and, and teach us all over the course of the next 30 <laughs> years about this. Um, so I can't say for sure, but he had the reputation of having a very specific normative agenda for judging. It was originalist, right? He tended to have a political notion of the nature of the interpretive function of the judge. He tended to have a, an agenda which has to be political in the sense that it, it framed his approach to judging about the nature of the interpretive process, its limitations, and the relationship of the judicial role, that is the extent of Article 3, as against the legislative and the, um, the executive role, and the federal role as against the state. That's fair game. One, because there is, and there always has been tolerated, some wide variation in the nature of the exercise of the judicial interpretive craft within the ideology of the common law, that's perfectly legitimate and it's extraordinarily consequential. Mm -hmm. Whether you are an absolute um, hater for political reasons of abortion or immigration or, um, I don't know, of capitalism, that is not legitimate. That really goes to the realm of the executive and the legislature, but it's perfectly fair game to talk about the normative politics of the judge as judge. We tend to be sloppy about this and we'll sometimes confuse it to you. Um, and this has been an ongoing, again, as I mentioned, yeah. this has been an ongoing and quite valid criticism of sloppy judges um, and sloppy discipline of the judiciary of its own cultures. But it still doesn't, it, it doesn't um, derogate from this fundamental distinction. And to just the last point, the validity of a political dimension to judging and especially of common law judging. What makes a Republican nominee different from a Democratic nominee? Is that only the party that nominates, or uh, is that really just random? So you couldn't really tell. That's contextual, too. I mean, remember um, that today's Republican is very different from, Eisen, oh, from Eisenhower's yeah. Republican, and yeah. today's Democrat is very different from a Roosevelt <laughs> Democrat. So Fair these, enough, yeah. yeah, the only thing it's like the it's like the meaning of the federal constitution. The only thing that <laughs> that remains constant is the word Democrat and Republican. But those have also, in a sense, become very hollow, um, and they keep getting infused with quite different, and certainly in the contemporary world, quite interesting 
um, uh, substantive components. But yeah, so what makes a difference? I guess in today's world, a um, at least officially a Republican quote unquote mm-hmm. judge is one who views the craft of judging in a very narrow and constrained way. So historical which, interpretation over. No, 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 that's intent. different. That's no, different. That's different. First, first, I'm talking. That's part of it too, but okay. that's a little different. Okay. So the first thing is: to what extent should there be judicial deference to legislative or executive decisions? That is, to what extent should the discretion of the legislature or the executive be broad, and therefore the intervention of the judiciary be narrow? Mm-hmm. Democrats would tend to view the role of the judge as much larger with respect to disciplining um, a, a bigger portion of, dis, of the discretion, right? The discretionary okay. judgments that are made by the legislature the, or the executive. Republicans would tend to view it as more narrow, <laughs> that you can defer as stupid as the legislature or the president might be or as brilliant as they might be, <laughs> that that is a matter with respect to which accountability lies with the electorate and not with the judges. The Democrats would tend to be more aggressive in policing that to the extent that there are consequences that may affect constitutional or normative constraints, Mm -hmm. right? Everyone gets murky on all of this when you're actually applying it to a particular (laughs) thing. But the theory is that. And then the second one, of course, is, well— how specifically, assuming that the judiciary is going to look at something, that they have to look at it. All right, so we've gotten over the the, the threshold question, are we going to defer? Yeah. Now we're in the question, okay, now we're going to look at it. The question is then, how are we going to look at it? Are we only going to look at it in the context of original meaning, whatever that means, mm-hmm. right? And the jury's that <laughs> it can mean all kinds of things. You know, it's it's a yeah. very... That's a very rich area, and it's not as narrow as its opponents um, point out. And indeed, and it's an extraordinarily useful means of of looking at a judicial decision. I am I am not I, I am to some extent a friend of of originalism, original understanding, yeah. but I'm I'm not. I my sense is that that is. A, but not the only necessary technique. One can order them, but there, there are a number of other techniques in the judicial uh, constellation which are as ancient and as legitimate, but the determination of when you use them what is, 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 um, is a, a more contentious issue. But so the Republicans, getting back to the question, sorry for the, All the, good. the, the little <laughs> tangents. Um, the Republicans, <laughs> The republic. I'm I'm trying to frame this in a way that because you you don't want to make a a factual statement. It, this is more a statement of perception. Yeah, the perception would tend to be that the Republicans as a whole would tend to be more comfortable with someone who embraces perhaps solely or who fundamentally privileges the idea that all interpretation must be either strictly textual and formalist or must adhere to the original understanding of the time, not of the drafters. Scalia makes this point very clearly, Mm -hmm. not of the drafters, but of the time in which the words were written. Okay. Democrats, on the other hand, 
are more uh, uh, are more open to, and some of them actually aggressively embrace the privileging of the notion of the living constitution, that words are defined not solely as a historical construct narrowly understood, but that they must be given the meaning and effect that is consonant with the expectations and aspirations of a political community at the time the issue of interpretation comes up. We covered the appointments of judges, but what um, most European member states, I think, are definitely not used to um, are on the lower level um, the election uh, of judges. Um, so that they're actually jurists, judges campaigning for getting into office. Uh, maybe you could combine um, the, my question of... Uh, does this work out in a good way, maybe generally, with um, uh, describing what other courts there are? Um, so on, on what levels yeah. are, are elections happening, maybe just in some states or… Um, right, right, right. And, and here, of course, is, is where your earlier question is, is nicely illustrated. So you, you talked about the differences. Are there 50 different uh, yeah. or 51 different uh, rules or are there one? Here's one where actually you do have… A substantial variation. And the yeah. question is, do you, at the federal level, you appoint, but that's a constitutional issue. Okay. Right? At the state level, it depends on the tradition of the state. You either appoint or elect, or you do both, or, um, and, and it depends on the tradition of the state and the tolerance of their polities for a particular way of looking at things or not. And, and of course, the issue is extraordinarily contentious and unresolved. At yeah. the state level, I, I suspect that you and I will be both long dead before there's any movement <laughs> towards any kind of consensus. I suspect Americans enjoy the contention more than its resolution. So yeah. th this thing will, will keep going. <laughs> right, on the one hand, there's a long tradition that says, look, if you're going to have popular government and we buy this notion of popular sovereignty, then we should go in all the way. And that means that the doesn't people, really reflect in the federal election system, does it? <laughs> well, that's okay. That's a, we can that's we can take that story. up later. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, right, sorry, right, right. Yeah. I, I know where you're going with that. We'll go to it in a little bit, yeah. right? If you buy the normative view that all oh, this is kind of like the American version of Rousseau, I guess, mm -hmm. um, or a, a kind of hyperlock. Um, if you buy the notion of popular sovereignty in the um, in the manifestation of popular will in government then there's absolutely no way that you should be able to distinguish between the power of the polity to elect its representative within the executive function, its representatives within the legislative functions, and enough, the co-equal branch, its representatives <laughs> within the judicial function, right? From the person, this is why theory is always a problem, right? <laughs> From the perspective of theory, this makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. The problem, of course, has always been that, well, if that's the case, should we not view the judge's role as somewhat different? It is not merely political, but it is, in fact, structurally disciplining. So judges don't just act as political actors on our behalf. Judges also have an oversight duty to protect the legitimacy and the integrity of the system itself. 
not just applying disputes, but, you know, especially in their constitutional uh, uh, context, which is, of course, why Hans Kelsen, whether you agree with him or not, tended to view um, the, the role of constitutional judging as substantially different, for example, than the role of judges in, in other respects in, in mm-hmm. resolving disputes. There's a little bit of that here in, in, in terms of judicial protection of the integrity of the state itself in its operations, at least through its apparatus. And if that's the case, if you allow judges, the if, if you allow the selection of judges um, and you consign it to the vagaries of electoral politics, then you subject it as well to all of its negative vagaries, which includes right. populism, um, momentary... Um, manias of some yeah, kind and yeah. you may not get the kind of judge you need that, that was the one of the first things we discussed uh here in the first year in law school um uh, between the students we also had some from the united states and then we talked about the whole electional thing um and they have campaigns they have uh donors they have money coming yeah, in they um, more and more right in, in some how, states how, you can't how, do that okay in some states then although that, that's changing now too because it, of supreme court judgments that have come down the last three or four years yeah okay but then you know um isn't the impartiality maybe a little bit in danger of the judges than there i mean this is the same obviously with the normal elections well but i mean the, the um aren't the judges there to hold up the rule of the law yeah. and if then there is a private business man or woman putting millions into a campaign for a judge um well isn't that all right all right so now now again i'm going to hit you with theory <laughs> Please. you live you live by the sword of democratic organization yeah. you die by the sword of democratic organization <laughs> that people might argue yeah is a function of popular discipline a people is entitled only to the state apparatus that it itself wills on itself. And the essence of democracy at its limits, right, mm-hmm. might also <laughs> have to cultivate a tolerance for the proclivity of the popular will to manifest itself in a way that you or I sitting in what we believe to be a position of privilege or knowledge that we view as completely insane. uh, But who are we to take that position if you buy into the notion, the the fundamental notion of democratic theory? You may look down your nose at this judge as a complete imbecile, (laughs) but that may be more about you than about the judge. Yeah. Right. And you may view the for the same reason that you may view the decisions of a legislature as completely asinine. But mm-hmm. that's more about you than it is about the polity. By buying into the system, you bought into the system. And to then pull yourself out, right, is is to suggest that the kind of elitism that is dangerous um to the extent that it actually is anti-democratic. But it also has a more pernicious effects. By doing that, you pull yourself out of the hurly-burly of democracy, which is where you should be making the comments that this judge is, uh, yeah. is asinine and that we need to replace her. What are the other negative aspects? Well, but I was going to do the other side. So, okay, so, okay, so you've got this problem. Yeah. So the answer um, among our elites, and again, I, I, I'm... I don't have a, a preference. So my, my own personal view is is contested depending on the time of day. I tend to be more sympathetic to one side or the other. I, I haven't made up my mind either. The 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 kind of elite part of me 
would say, oh my God, of course, this is very important. It's quite distinct. And someone, some enlightened, you know, this is like the platonic leaders, right? Ought to have a greater say in this. And perhaps the way that we can deal with that, because we don't have the platonic leaders, because that would be absolutely too anti-democratic for American taste. <gasps> I know what we can do, says these people in the form of the progressives, for example. Yeah. I know what we can do. What we can do is have second-order democratic accountability. This is, uh, of course, for those of you in Europe, this is a, a version of the democratic deficit um, that you are told by your own elites doesn't exist. Right? <laughs> and, and so what you do is you say, well, okay, we can't have some kind of platonic elite choose the right judge, but we can give it to the head of the elected officialdom in the particular jurisdiction. So rather than have elections, why don't we have the governor appoint? Ah, mm-hmm. we're preserving the facade of democracy, right? Because it is the highest elected official of the state that is actually doing yeah. the appointment, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, again, to to echo the, the old uh, discussions that you have in Europe on democratic deficit, on the other hand, populists would say, ah, no, 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 because now what you've done is you've put, you've interposed someone between the electorate and, and the, the choice, yeah. right? And indeed, we don't have a direct say anymore. It's the governor. And the problem here, of course, uh, is that the governor can as easily, um, so it is said, and of course, it would far from me to make a judgment about any of this, but it has been said that sometimes uh, governors might give in to the temptation to appoint cronies, friends, um, okay, and yeah, the course. possibilities yes. of corruption, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, which is why- both levels. Right, which is why there's no consensus in the yeah. U.S. So yeah. on the one hand, you go, uh, we've got a problem <laughs> with electing judges. On the other hand, you go, uh, we have a problem with appointing judges. So which is better? We have no idea. And every time we think we have an idea, there's some scandal or that'll come up and then it'll push us back in closer to another direction. And Mm. then we'll go there. There'll be a scandal on that side. Um, And perhaps the best thing that can be said for our system is, in fact, that we haven't been able to make up our minds so that we can't. There there may be integrity in continuing to move back and forth between the two models or to embed them, to liberally embed them um, in their different guises all over the place. On the road to uh, even more controversy. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, I think you might know what I would ask yeah. now. Uh, let's talk about the federal election yes. system. Yes. Um, may we be able, I think a lot of listeners know the system, but uh, may we be able to just quickly summarize how federal elections go uh, about Oh, well, we all line up in the, the photo booth, depending on how you feel about voter identification. <laughs> it's either a way of reducing the polity or protecting the integrity of our electoral system. And again, that has become a politically quite contentious. We all line up and then we all go vote for a person that has been nominated by their political party and then one or the other wins. Right. But that's not the issue, is it? The problem that for here's the problem. Most countries, um, and I'm not sure about Germany, but most countries, um, especially unified states, will tend to accept the principle of majority voting. And that makes Mm -hmm. perfect sense. So you have the the recent French elections, you have, I don't know, 20 million French people vote. And if 
uh, 50% plus one voter votes for a person, they win. Yeah. Right. And then then you don't care whether most of them, everyone in Marseille voted for one person and then it was Mm -hmm. liberally uh, split up elsewhere. The American government is a federal government. Everyone keeps forgetting that federal government (laughs) is, the word federal Mm. is not a fetish word that you invoke you know, just to make yourself feel good. It has significant political consequences. It may no longer have a whole lot of legal consequences. Everything has been federalized. But the fact that the America, that the United States of America remains at heart a federation, Mm -hmm. formally, whether functionally (laughs) we're a federation or not, that's a political issue and we can all debate that (laughs) until we die and then, then some. But formally, and structurally, we remain a federation. What that require, what that produced at the end of the 18th century, was a very conscious and very deliberate political solution to the issue of representation in the general government, and that solution involved rejecting the idea of simple majority voting in favor of a system that produced greater weight to a larger number of the states as member states of the American Union. Mm-hmm. Right. There's an echo of this, of course, in the European Union itself with uh, weighted voting yeah. uh, in the council. So, you know, the Europeans are not... They're not oblivious either to the issues or to a solution. Within our federation, that was a solution. Otherwise, right, and and there were, if you looked at the last election, of course, some people have run numbers and they showed that, in fact, um, if everyone in 15 counties in the United States had all voted for the candidate that ultimately lost, uh, she would have won, right? But from an American in the eight, all right, and I'll do it in the safest way possible. From the perspective <laughs> of an 18th century person who is structuring our republic, the idea that a person who wins because of overwhelming vote, right, who wins the election because of the overwhelming vote of 15 counties, right, as yeah. opposed to everywhere else, would be abhorrent because what that would effectively do is unbalance the republic and allow the um, federal institutions to effectively be hijacked by the most populous parts of the region, giving the rest of the republic very little voice. But if we're founded on a theory of horizontal equality, right, and that everyone, right, 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 <laughs> and again, there's echoes of these notions. These American notions are actually very powerful. We we forget about them, but that was one of the underlying uh, notions, for example, that animated um, horizontal equality among states within the UN Charter. Yeah. For example, so if you start in the end of the 18th century with the notion of horizontal equality among the states that make up the general government. Now, notice I'm using antique terms. Right. We have a general government which represents both the people in the House of Representatives and the states. This is before Mm -hmm. the, the, um, the first third of the 20th century. Right. To preserve that federal character and the power of states within the system, you had to figure out a way of 
dealing with the issue of voting. And what they came up with, then there was another issue, which has now become far more antique. And that is the issue that no one actually trusted the rabble back in the 18th century. I don't think they trust the rabble now, but there's less that one can do. And so the idea was not only were we going to protect the Federation, but we were going to also ensure that elections for federal, for the, 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 the central federal officials would be indirect. So you don't vote mm -hmm. for president. You vote for someone your betters. You vote for someone who then promises that they will do a better job representing all of your sentiments to vote for president. Yeah. So those two things, and we sometimes conflate them. The two very different, they're coming from two very different places. One is to protect the federal character of the republic. The other is to protect us from ourselves, at least as the 18th century uh, mindset would have had it. Um, and what you see then in our voting is a consequence of that. It is theoretically possible, and perhaps it happened in our last election, that a numerical majority dis that is amalgamated will vote for a candidate who actually loses the election because mm -hmm. that person did not win a majority of, of positive votes within the 50 states. And that annoys people more and more and more. But yeah. what that requires then is a fundamental political discussion about the nature and character and consequences of the American Federal Republic. And that's a conversation we don't appear to want to have. Gerrymandering. Um, to, to throw this uh, in the pot. <laughs> um, Turn up the heat. Through, through this uh, system of... Um, of voting uh, and then gerrymandering to everyone that didn't listen to the episodes uh, that we had earlier uh, is basically cutting, well, um, setting the lines of the electoral district uh, in a way that you know that it, they will represent either Republican or Democrat or, well, yeah, it's those two. Um, doesn't this lead to the results that are? Uh, no. No. No, absolutely not. The reason being that the, the operative level for the American presidential election are the states. You can't gerrymander the states. Rhode Island is going to be Rhode Island, yeah. right? And Wyoming is going to be Wyoming. Yeah. Where gerrymandering <clears throat> becomes critically important is in where the, the gerrymander itself defines the territory of the district from which you're going to elect an official. Yes. And I yes. now okay. I'm going to go yeah. out on a limb and say... <laughs> That I believe that judicial decisions from the first, and they are very old, um, judicial decisions from the first, to the extent that they have permitted gerrymandering and continue to permit it, were wrong, are wrong, and will continue to be mm -hmm. wrong, precisely because I view them as playing in a very dangerous way with the integrity of the republic itself, and that one ought to have to live, if we have a territorially-based union of territorially-based subordinate units, one is going to have to live with the consequences of territory, and if that means you have well-marbled You have very well-marbled populations. You have very well-marbled populations. The problem is, of course, that gerrymandering, while it tends to be viewed as the darling of the hard right, is also sometimes very useful either to left or progressive agendas, which is why yeah. you never get a consensus, I think, to get rid of it. Because everyone wants to use it. Everyone wants to use it for the purpose of creating their own strongholds. 
I personally believe that that whole notion is suspect within our republic and to the extent that it's made, quote unquote, necessary by residual racism, misogyny, ethnocentrism, Mm -hmm. whatever. That problem, I think, is better addressed by doing something other than this. But but very uh, but minds that are much more sophisticated than mine will differ on this. I just I I find it I find it fundamentally troubling uh, if you look at it from the perspective of the long term integrity of the republic to even view gerrymandering as something that ought to continue. But with respect again, with respect to the presidential election, it doesn't play no, well. Doesn't play okay, um, if you would have to uh, conclude, which is. Um probably a bit hard to do is there a need for a reform for the electoral system on the federal level again and i'm going to give you again a lawyer's <laughs> answer it depends on your view of what you believe is the truest current expression of okay. the american republic okay. yeah. for those who continue to believe in the importance of a federal union right the electoral college in some form reformed or not, may serve a useful purpose. For those who believe that we have long passed the time of that kind of structurally differentiated federal union and that we're much more a unitary state, well, then the whole notion of the Electoral College and the whole notion of states interposing themselves as mm-hmm. states in national elections then becomes much more problematic. So it depends, again, it depends on your politics. And my sense is that neither of those views is wrong. Yeah, yeah. They're political decisions that are grounded in all kinds of issues or all kinds of factors that may be very personal or political and ideological to the people who are who are going to make the decision. I mean, I could imagine that the political situation there is quite similar to gerrymandering. Um, that, of course, maybe now the uh, Democratic Party um, had a bad outcome because of this system, um, but the next time could be the other, other way around. That's always the problem. <laughs> That's always the problem. And then, of course, that was that was to, to shift just a little bit. That's always the danger as as we've seen, uh, especially during the eight years of the Obama administration, that's also always the, the danger of indulging in or creating new legislative techniques. Tools tend to have no ideology and no master. And the things that one does to further one's own short-term political agendas under one administration can then be used against you in the next. And so one ought to be very cautious. Yeah. Um, we we talked about the uh, the federal legislature, then also the rights the states have um, in certain areas. I will come back to that in a second. Um, but there's a third player. Um, there's the president, um, which... Uh, oh, I, knew, I knew you were going to go there. It, 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 it has <laughs> to. It has to. to, especially now. I mean, I, mean, I, I would suppose um, other presidents use the instrument of uh, the executive order um, also quite in, uh, extensively. And they have. They have, exactly. Oh, but of at, at least now, I mean, at, especially here in, in the Western European states, he, he as a president, isn't seen as uh, something... Um, 
um, good for the European project. This is also why the and like we, we don't have to evaluate this now, but this is also why the press brings those executive orders up and up and up again. So yeah, every time this happens, this is something that never happened before. Trump right. is using misusing his powers, etc. Well, what that's, is that's politics? That's politics, of not course, law. of course. Um, but what is law? Is the instrument of an executive order? Yeah. What is that? That's uh, exactly what it says. Mm -hmm. It is a um, it is a command by the executive with respect to the ordering and functioning of those departments of government that are consigned to his administration and control. Yeah. And we've been using them forever. Um, I do want to note. <laughs> that um, executive orders have become increasingly objects of politics as the legislature has become increasingly inefficient in doing its own duty. Okay. Right. And then power has been shifting either because they're reacting against the legislative agenda or trying to work around legislative um, stasis. Right. And so they've, they've now become, uh, and, And they've been increasingly used in very contentious areas um, and viewed as, as both either a usurpation of uh, legislative privilege uh, and then the increasing of an imperial presidency or viewed as instruments of de anti-democratic um, activity that will undermine the um the republic but for all of that i do want to remind you that and and most listeners because most people and and it's surprising even in europe which i thought had a much longer historical memory of course for <laughs> americans yesterday is history and the day before is prehistory and yeah. it, it, it's un, it's inscrutable but we forget that it was in 1951 or 1952 that one of the most con politically contentious executive orders was issued, and that was Harry Truman's executive mm -hmm. order to nationalize our um, steel industries in the face of an intractable strike by the steel workers in the middle of a very significant engagement, we can't call it war, a significant <laughs> international engagement on the Korean Peninsula, one which almost as quickly as it was issued was rejected by the Supreme Court. So the current president's um, Efforts, for example, in immigration, which yeah. was then undermined by the courts, is neither a new thing nor a uh, evidence of the ch uh, fundamental change in the republic nor anything else. From a broader historical perspective, presidents certainly over the last 50 or 60 years have been doing this. <laughs> now, the, the contentions of the 1950s now are have been stripped of all of yeah. their passion because it's the 1950s um and the ones from 2017 are much more passionate <laughs> right because they're they're current but but i it, it's important when one assesses this to keep the historical context in mind if if only to um appropriately weigh and balance the significance of of particular um excursions by the president into what may or may not appear to be legislative Who can stop the executive order? You mentioned the Supreme Court, but Supreme I, Court. I, I believe with the um, immigration uh, executive orders, those were different federal judges, weren't they? 
Oh, of course. Not of the Supreme Court, though. No, no. So, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't need to be the Supreme okay. Court. I mean, you can start in ordinary course mm-hmm. at the, the lowest court of general jurisdiction. That decision, of course, was appealed in the, the case yeah. of immigration to the Ninth Circuit, and that could have been appealed, and it may well at some point be appealed to the federal Supreme Court that would then look at it. The, the difference, of course, in the Truman era, the issue was so critical. The timing was so critical that it was deemed necessary for the Supreme Court to act quickly because we were in the middle of a war. Yeah. (laughs) Some people may, you know, you you may try to work that analogy with immigration, but there I think it's it's a little more contentious. But it's not just the judiciary that can block this. There is no reason for the example that the legislature cannot in its sovereign majesty um, legislate rules that would either undermine or void uh, an action of the president with respect to the contents of an order. Um, I think it's telling in a lot of these contexts that the legislature sometimes stands silent. Mm-hmm. Right. But certainly they're around and they can do it. And to the extent that these executive orders have to be implemented, there's a tremendous amount of discretionary room. Right, by either the administrators or the line officers to add their own character to to a lot of what is going on. And indeed, one sees this in the um, efforts, for example, to shift the emphasis in the way in which um, visitors come to the United States. Um, a lot of that may have had its origin in either discussions or may have some penumbras to um, orders that are coming either from the White House or from Homeland Security. But a lot of it is also the sum of discretionary decisions that are made on the line. Right. And so this becomes a little more complicated. But can those orders only be made in certain uh topical fields so do you just have certain areas that you Only, can do that in does there need to be urgency or is basically no, the, the no, president the, happy to the president can do act. as he likes within the scope of his authority as yeah. and when he likes i mean there's there's no reason why a president cannot sit 24 hours a day and write <laughs> executive orders until his hands fall off yeah um or not write any at all generally speaking Right. There's a time cost to spending a lot of time doing this. And the president tends to be busy on other, other things, things as well. Mm-hmm. All right. And so there's an economy to this. Um, most presidents don't, you know, depending on the issue, it's political urgency, strategic considerations and the like. You'll have more or less of a tendency to do it. But it, it really does depend on the context at the time. To go back to the open question with the 50 laws or one uniform law, <laughs> um, what is left to the state? I, I do remember from uh, the American legal system, of course, I took once um, the so-called Commerce Clause Authority, yes. uh, through which, if I remember correctly, the states somehow circumvent the restrictions that the federal... No, that's the other way around. Just, just go for it. Right. Now, uh, what's left to the states? <sighs> For the most part, subject to constitutional limitations. Yeah. For the most part, most issues of property. Okay. And even bankruptcy, federal bankruptcy law, which is exclusive to the federal government, recognizes that to some extent. So you have at least 50 different yeah, property yeah, yeah. laws. Well, this is like Germany. Yeah, to some extent. Yeah. Right? It's, it's the land that control the, 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 to some extent, I think. 
Uh, although I may be, uh, I forget uh, what the, uh, the, the division the, the, is. The federal right? government's acted already upon that. Okay, so then, that, then that's a different story, but done. in general, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. But in, in the yeah. U.S., then unlike Germany, in the U.S., it's the, the, the nature of property and property ownership is for the most part still left to the states. Yeah. A good chunk of family law is still left to the states. Corporate law is still left to the states. Not all corporate law, um, because from a European perspective, half of corporate law has been pulled out in the form of federal <laughs> securities law. Uh-huh. But what we call corporate law um, is still the province of the states. Now, some of these could be pulled out. So, for example, it is possible for the federal government to create a federal corporate law mm-hmm. and to displace state law. Some of them, it would be harder constitutionally for them to do. Um, the, the bottom line is, of course, that the residual exclusive mandate of the states have shrunk. The areas where there's concurrent authority is broad, but the decisions about whether the states continue to act in those areas of concurrent um, jurisdictions have tended to shift from the states to the federal government. So in a sense, it's the federal government with respect to exercises of legislative authority, and it's the federal courts with respect to exercises of constitutional decision-making on constraints that tend to define the borders within which states can continue to act as sovereign actors in the United States. Since uh, we, or Master Law Talk is a comparative uh, law talk, uh, podcast, whatever you want to call it, um, what would you say, if you would have to summarize in one or two sentences, is the... (laughs) most fundamental difference between the Anglo-American or especially the U.S. system compared to maybe the civil law tradition as a whole or a specific example you could give? Oh, my God. Excuse me. I'm, I'm going to do a very bad job with this, but I'll... I'll you I'll, can also take five sentences. That's fine. <laughs> you know, even if I had to do 20 sentences. <laughs> um, it, it, and, and I'll start with why it's difficult. It's difficult to some extent because certainly over the last 40 years, there's been an extraordinary amount of convergence um, between systems. Um, the Europeans, even in civil law countries, have adopted something that I never thought would be possible, the jury system. Yeah. For example, Mm -hmm. and at the same time, the taste of common law countries for statutes as opposed to common law has also increased in a way that our forebearers in the 20s, 30s, and 40s would have thought just impossible, right? So there's there's a bit of convergence. So when you look at differences in form, part of the problem is the convergence makes being able to isolate differences harder. I think the the best way of, of thinking about the differences is in approaches to law and governance. The Americans continue to view the relationship between law and the state as incomplete and contingent. The Mm -hmm. Europeans tend to view the connections between law and the state as complete. There is no law unless it proceeds from or through the states in whatever appropriate form, whatever constitutional order that is uh, relevant applies in the United States, that's not necessarily true. 
we have higher order law, we have custom and tradition, either in the form ritualized in the form of the common law, we have um, calls to tradition outside of that in terms of interpretation, our law. And so the biggest difference is, I think, is in the porosity of sources of law and in the not complete connection between the structures and edifices of law on the one hand and the structures and edifices of the state on the other. And that probably, if you're looking for a fundamental difference, that's a fundamental difference, I think, between that there remains between civil law countries and the peculiar <laughs> regime of uh, certainly of the Americans. This was the long-awaited episode about the American legal system. Um, thank you very much, Larry Cutter Becker, who is a professor of law and international affairs at Penn State. Oh, you're welcome. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. How can uh, people find your uh, work online? Just <laughs> Google and then find uh, your blog. Yeah, you can Google. I have uh, a lot of my work is on my website, uh, Becker in Law. It's one word, and and I do blog. Um, on uh, my site, and the site is called Law at the End of the Day. But you can just Google me and, and see what you find. I think what we have seen today, at the end of the day, it's coming down <laughs> to interpretation. That's exactly right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you.